episode 2509 of the number one podcast and Apple podcast, The Job Search. You are listening to or watching No BS Job Search Advice Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Alpin, The Big Game Hunter, and welcome. Monday is the declared anniversary of the show. Twelve years we've been on. Actually, the real date is Sunday, but I don't release shows on Sunday. So Monday is going to be part two of the top 10 lessons from all these years of doing the show. Part one was released on episode 2500, so you can go back and uh, listen to or watch it there. And Monday is 2510 and will be the part two of the series. Now, today's show is a great interview I did with Stever, yes, Stever, S-T-E-V-E-R, Let's try that again. Stever, S-T-E-V-E-R, Robbins, not Steve, Stever Robbins, who talks about high-value stories and using them effectively in interviews. And of course, this can be applied anywhere else. About 40 minutes in length. Hope you find it helpful. And we'll be back in just one moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So my guest today is Stever, not Steve, Stever Robbins. Companies hire Stever to ensure that their top performers and high potential leaders are inspired, engaged, and able to reach their full potential. After all, his thinking is you can't manage your superstars the same way you manage everyone else. They have different capabilities, different motivations, and different needs. He has graduated from both not just one, but both MIT and Harvard Business School and has been with several startups. And get this, not one, not two, not three, but four, count them, four IPOs. Stever, welcome. Thanks for making time today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. You, uh, I, I feel pressure already to keep up with your level of energy, but I just don't know if I can do it. <laughs> You're pretty spectacular. Why, thank you. I appreciate the acknowledgement. And, and folks, we're going to be talking about telling high value stories, because if you're just going to present as one of the pack, that's the way you're going to be seen on the way in. And that's the way you're going to be seen your entire time. And that's not the way anyone ever wants to be seen. So maybe we could just start off, Steve, by answering the question, what is a high value story? All right. So regardless of your philosophical leanings, if you think, oh, everyone is created exactly the same, the reality is that people generally present themselves the same. And especially in the job, job search, to some degree, this makes a ton of sense because it's a paradox. If you have a lot of experience job searching, that means that you have had to be in the job market many, many times. So if you have a lot of experience job searching and you get really good at job searching, it probably means that you can't hold down a job. On the other hand, if you really are somebody who can hold down a job, you're not going to go through very many job searches because you're not going to need to. So you don't necessarily get good at them. 
So there's a whole paradox here. And creating a high value story is creating a story that when an employer hears it, instead of just thinking, ah, yes, another candidate for this job, thank you. Tell us, tell us your biggest, uh, tell us your biggest weakness and, and your biggest strength, yawn. Instead, they interpret you and what you've done and the potential that you represent as like, oh, if we have Jeff working for us, that's going to be fabulous for our business. That's going to be fabulous for me as the HR person hiring him. And boy, is that going to be fabulous for Jeff's manager. We want Jeff at this company. And a high value story is the story that you tell that makes people think that. And, you know, I tend to think of when I, when I hear that, I think in terms of, you know, ooh, those moments, uh, creating those ooh moments in an interview that so few people are, are able to do. So how does one construct a high value story, the ones that create that create that wow moment uh, in, in someone's psyche? You know what? I, I'm going to leave the job search for a minute. I'm going to use a metaphor that we are probably all familiar with from daily life, which is, have you ever gone to a McDonald's and gotten yourself a Big Mac? Not during this presidency, I haven't, and probably not during the two or three previous ones. But I do have memories from back when of doing that. Okay, you've had you've you've had a Big Mac before. Now, have you ever gone to a really high-end restaurant and ordered some delicious meal, may, maybe even a really high-end burger? Yes. Now, at the moment when you were placing the order. You, oh, and you probably paid different amounts of money for those two things. You play, paid a different amount of money for the McDonald's hamburger than you did for the high-end meal. Okay, You actually made your purchase decision before you had any idea of whether or not the food was any good. When you went to the high-end restaurant, you were expecting to pay high-end prices. You were expecting a certain level of preparation. And in fact, if you didn't get it, you might have complained to the manager. You might have said, we're never going back there again. But... Even if you said you were never going back there again, a lot of times you'll go, you'll eat, and you'll pay. You'll actually go ahead and pay, even if after the fact, the meal wasn't worth what you thought it was. And the same thing with McDonald's. If McDonald's said, you know, $29 for, for a Big Mac, you would scoff and you would roll your eyes. But if you go out and you pay for that Big Mac and you eat it, and it is like the most delicious thing you've ever had, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, that Big Mac was worth $29, you don't go back and give them 25 more dollars because it was worth that much. The value in the economic transaction takes place based on the story that you have about the meal you're about to have. And based on that, you're willing to go to a particular place, even though you know you're going to spend a lot of money, or you want to go to another place because you're not going to spend very much money, etc. So that so suggests, I, I'm going to interrupt you here for a second. Yeah. That suggests that the branding of um, the establishment creates the value proposition that makes someone want to spend 25 more dollars on getting that burger because it has created the expectation that it has that value. Yep. Am I interpreting that correctly? You're interpreting that 100% correctly. And I don't want to suggest that when you are hunting for a job, you're basically just a hamburger wearing nicer clothes. But when you're hunting for a job, you're basically just a hamburger wearing nicer clothes. And 
you need to be able to tell a story of why you are the premium hamburger rather than the average hamburger. And there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. You know, one of which, for example, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into several, um, right? One of which is literally just presentation. One of the secrets to life that a lot of people don't really, that I think a lot of us know to some degree, but, but we don't really think very hard about it, is that human beings respond to context and to sort of superstitious beliefs what is as strongly or even more strongly than they respond to actual data and substance. So if somebody comes in, actually, I'll tell a real story from my past. Uh, uh, there was a gentleman who I was working with, and he was somebody who had been the youngest C-suite person at the, at the time that he was. He was the youngest C-suite person ever elected to the C-suite of a Fortune 500 company. And we were giving a presentation together. And as we were walking off stage, he turned to me and he was furious. And he said, I never, ever want to be seen with you like this in public again. And I said, seen like what? And he said, that suit you're wearing. And I was like, this was actually a, this is like a decent, you know, quality suit. I've never had a problem with it before. And he said, yes, except if you wear a $2,000 suit, people will know that it's a $2,000 suit. More accurately, most people won't know. Most people will just see you're wearing a suit, but the people who know how to tell the difference will recognize it as a $2,000 suit and they will not haggle on price because when they see that you're wearing a $2,000 suit, they will immediately assume you're a premium product and you're at the top of your game. And I'll tell you something. I took that lesson and I took that lesson home and I thought, man, I hate wearing suits. We're going to have to recraft the entire economy so that we no longer have to wear suits. Because if, if suits are going to be the currency of persuasion, I am going to lose because I hate wearing suits. Um, so, uh, and I, we successfully did that by having tech take over the world and then, and then forcing COVID to have everyone get used to pajamas. But that was a 20-year plan. And that would, you know, you, you don't have the time to do that uh, in your own job search. But basically, your clothes are one way of signaling high value. Now, if you just show up wearing the same thing, okay, it's important to know that you're competing for a job. And what that means is you can't just measure your value in the abstract. You can't just walk in and say, I am a high value candidate, because you need to be high value relative to the other people who are applying. So if everyone is walking in wearing an off the rack suit that looks schlumpy, and you walk in wearing an off the rack, you, you, you know, you're smarter than me and you go, ooh, I know that I need part of projecting value is to wear a suit, but you walk in wearing a schlumpy suit that doesn't look as good as the other people before and after you, you're not distinguishing yourself on, by clothing. And we'll talk about other ways of doing it, but by clothing, you're not gonna stand out and yeah. you're not going to be memorable. So if you're in interviewing in high tech, for example, the currency is not necessarily suits. The currency may be, you know, maybe wearing the Steve Jobs black turtleneck or whatever the culture is at the company where you're interviewing. But uh, if you're going into an investment banking interview and you're wearing a cheap suit and the person, the, the people before and after you are wearing really sharp, really expensive suits, because that's one of the few professions where people still really spend a lot of money on presentation, um, you're going to stand out not in a good way. So First of all, you want to think about appearance and, you know, you, and again, it's relative to the job that you're going after, but if you're interviewing for Burning Man headquarters, wearing a $2,000 suit and having a neatly trimmed hair, 
that's not the currency that they're looking for. Showing up in sandals and a tie-dye t-shirt, you know, holding your your Raspberry Pi art project that is, you know, creating a blinking halo around your head, that's probably a lot more likely to to, to be commensurate with the culture. But if you're showing up for an investment banking interview or marketing or whatever, you want to be wearing the kinds of clothes. And if possible, if you can afford it and if you have it, you want to be wearing just one notch nicer or more artistic or whatever the currency is for the kind of thing that you're applying for. And don't always assume it's just niceness. Seth Godin used the term, people like us do things like that. Uh, and you want to be one of those people who represents the elite in an organization or an, an elite, um, high-value, uh, top-performer, uh, super-successful, whatever term is appropriate for the type of position uh, you're competing for, uh, presentation. Yep, absolutely. What, I, I don't want to fixate our entire conversation about wardrobe. Uh, yeah. And for men, I'll just remind you, that's a great tie also, not just simply the suit. And for women, I never worry about you. You always know what the right thing is. Uh, excuse <laughs> me for being sexist about this, but I tend not to worry about the women I, I work with. Uh, what else should be people be doing to create that high value story about themselves that makes them magnetic to others? So one of the things is you, well, <laughs> there were a few different things you said there um, because there's high, there, there, there's creating the story and there's delivering it. And the delivering it is, is an interpersonal thing, which is really important to be able to get down because you can be the best person in the world at something. And if you don't have the people skills to, to show someone how that's the case, you're just gonna get passed over because people aren't gonna recognize that. But in the creation of the high value story, you need to know what value is. What is value in the place that you're going? So, and this depends upon the type of job that you have, and this depends on the type of organization that you're applying to. Different organizations have different cultures and the different cultures value different things. There are places where the most important thing might be to be a team player because maybe you engage in large projects. These are projects that are not, that, that could be over a long period of time, too big for any one person to be able to take credit or do everything. Actually, you know, an example I'll use uh, is theater here is theater to me is one of the most, one of the most team sports ever, because there is no one, no matter how good that can make a production succeed, but almost anyone either in the tech or the actors, or the writer, or the director, almost anyone can make one tank. So in order to make a successful theatrical production, everyone really has to work together. And the kinds of qualities that might be really prized there is the, is the interpersonal pieces and the, the, the pieces of knowing how to do something that is, you know, that is very much uh, integrating both technical aspects and individual performance, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, if you're talking about a profession like, um, I keep coming back to finance because that was my most recent job, but like, let's say that you're running, you're, you're a fund manager for Fidelity and you, you are managing a mutual fund. Generally there, you have a team working for you, but you're judged on individual performance. You're judged on how well your particular thing does. There, the thing that is high value to people is not going to be 
oh, are you nice and sweet? And can you work with people and persuade them to do what you want? It's going to be, if we give you a $100 million fund, will you give us back $120 million at the end of the year so that the people who were, you know, who have subscribed to that fund, fund are going to want it? So step one is you need to understand what is it that's valued in the organization and or the industry that you're working in. So I think uh, we're recording this right in the middle of Elon Musk's first few weeks as the owner of Twitter. And one of the things that, that Elon did, I think his second day there, is he wanted all of the programmers who had recently worked on the code base, he wanted them ranked by the number of lines of code they changed in the code base. And he basically fired the ones who didn't write very many lines of code. So that's a really explicit statement that what he values is lines of code written. Now, if you're a programmer or if you have worked in high tech and actually know anything about programming, you will realize that's actually a really, really bad metric. And paradoxically, more lines of code is not necessarily good. No, it means code. Right, exactly. So, you know, so what that, but, but, but yet he was the boss and he was the person who made the decision as to what criteria to use to fire people. So it's important to get a sense for the culture. And, you know, in the world we're living in, you can get that sense for the culture. Go on LinkedIn, search for, search for a few people at the company that you're interviewing with and just look at the kinds of things they write about. Send them a message. Say, you know, hey, I'm applying for a job at your company. Could you tell me a little bit about the culture? They might say no. They may be prohibited from doing that, but they might say sure, you know, and just ask them, you know, say what's important? What are the what are the things that I should work on before I before I do my interview? And strive to learn what some of those criteria are going to be. Once you know, then is the issue of crafting your resume, crafting your verbal story to emphasize those high value things. And it, it's, um, and, and stop me if I'm just going on and on and on, because this is something that once you get me going, it's kind of hard to get me to stop sometimes. Um, but a lot of people, when they write their resume, they think that the point of a resume is to list the things they've done and to say, look, here's the experience I have. That's not actually the point of a resume. The people reading your resume don't actually care what experience you have. What they care about is what you can do for them. What they care about is if they hire you, will you solve whatever problem it is that they currently have that's requiring them to hire someone else? Now, that problem might be, wow, we need someone who knows some very specific technology and has a lot of experience in it. And the reason a lot of experience matters is we need someone who can hit the ground running. Now, what I just did there is I just went up to what they're or went up or down to what their real underlying goals were. What they were saying is we need someone who has X number of years of experience with this technology. So the question you want to ask yourself is why would they need that? Why would they be looking for someone with X number of years of technology? And the answers really are, well, so that person could maybe, so they could debug code quickly, so that they could hit the ground running, so that they could write code quickly, those are the things that really matter to the hiring manager is how and, fast can you write code? And how sometimes it's about minimizing risk of failure because yep. if we hire, if we ask for someone with 15 years of writing code and this could really be done with someone with seven or eight years of experience writing code, we have the expectation that the 15 year person, they're not going to screw up quite as much or as frequently 
and this is a fallacy, folks, we both know this, but th their thing is about minimizing risk. The eight-year person, ooh, we might have to supervise them. Watch what they do because they might make mistakes. Oh, God, mistakes. But the 15-year person, nah, they're, they're the safe hire. No one ever got fired by, by, for buying IBM computers. It used to be the saying from back in the Stone Ages, and now we laugh at that because who buys well, now computers? Now, now we say no one ever got fired for buying Microsoft, which, you know, is, yeah. Anyway, uh, by the way, did I tell you that I had over 15 years of high-tech experience before I shifted into business? Just saying. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, so you figured out what's important to them. And part of the way that you did that is you look at the job requirements and you ask for each requirement, why are they asking that? What benefit is that going to bring to the company? So they want somebody with 10 years of experience using this type of software. Why? Probably so that they can hit the ground running, so they're not going to make mistakes, and so that they can uh, uh, they can debug code. Let's just say that's those are those are the things you you believe. Now go through your resume, and with those things in mind, and we call those criteria. Those are the criteria. The criteria is is debugability hit the ground running and not gonna make mistakes. And go through your resume and pull out the pieces that can be used to exemplify those. So you look on your resume and you say, oh, look, I wrote this, this 5,000 line controller for a robot at my last job. Great, you wrote a 5,000 line controller for a robot at your last job. How does that link up to those criteria? Does that show that you can hit the ground running? If you want to show that you can hit the ground running, take that very same bullet point and said, with almost no experience, wrote a 5,000 line controller for this robot in under three weeks. What that's showing is, is boom, fast learning curve. And it's flavor to the story, yes. as opposed to flat facts, you've given context and flavor to it. So going back to the restaurant analogy, it's the $29 hamburger versus the $4.59 hamburger. Yes. And well, and in fact, it's not, it's even more than flavor. You've basically told the reader how to interpret that fact. Because if I just give you a fact, if I say, if I say the temperature is 75 degrees today, you can read that and it's like, so what? But if I say to you, we're experiencing unusually warm weather, the temperature is 75 degrees today, even though I haven't given you any additional facts, I've told you how to interpret the 75. So if you wrote 5,000 lines for your robot controller, one interpretation might be you can get up to speed quickly. But let's say the point you're trying to make is not the up to speed part, but the part about debugging. In that case, you say, wrote and debugged 5,000 line controller in under three weeks. And what that says was, wow, you were able to get this run running and debugged. So it's very small changes in wording, but you're making the changes in wording so that they so that they produce the interpretation on the part of the reader. So you start by asking yourself, what do they really want? And you get that by asking why for all the criteria that they're listing in the job description. Why do they, why do they want this? Why do they want this? Why do they want this? Once you know what those criteria are, now you go back 
into your resume and you pull out the points that are going to support those criteria and you just make it a little bit clearer. You make sure that each point includes just enough context that it guides the interpretation of the reader. So when they, by the time they're reading the facts, you've already told them, here's how to interpret it. Just today, I was, I was helping someone with a resume and this person uh, is a, a young person who has constructed rocket engines in as an undergrad, this is like something that usually you you know you'd be you do in industry or in grad school. But they went ahead and did it as an undergrad. They constructed rocket engines. I'm kind of like, wow! I, I I made rocket engines when I was a teenager. We had these little little things that were like this big, and we stuck them inside a cardboard rocket and we lit the fuse. In his case, it was an actual thruster. But in any event, um, now just listing that on his resume is impressive if you know how hard it is. But like maybe you're thinking about those little rockets and you know the, the that you put the that you put the the fireworks inside of. So I asked him, what is the reason that rocket thrusters are impressive? What's what function is that serving on your resume? And he was like, well, I want to show people that that I can handle, I, you know, that I can I can learn something, I can apply it, and I can apply it where I actually build the thing, as raise the money find the resources and then end up with a working rocket thruster. And I was like, okay, so what you want to do is you want to make it clear to people that you are a team leader, that you are a fundraiser, that you are someone who can learn quickly and that you are someone who can apply what you learn. And none of that came out from just that sentence. So the, the instructions I have given is that go back and go back and make sure that that comes out on your resume. And when you're talking about it, don't just say, I built these thrusters. Say, look, I led the team because you know what they're really listening for is team leadership ability, especially out of a techie. I led the team to take the knowledge that we had and apply it. So we actually built the thing and even raised the money to bring it all the way to, to working status. In one sentence there, Instead of just saying, we built these rocket thrusters, you're telling them how to interpret. Interpret this as, I have leadership skills. Interpret this as, I can apply the material that I know. Interpret this as, I can learn the material in the first place. And interpret this as, I can raise money. And all of those can be put in very subtly in the way that you write your resume, but in a way that when someone reads it, they're going to go, oh, here's a person who raised the money and led the team versus this other person who just built two rocket controllers, two, two rocket thrusters. Right? Which, although impressive, I, is even more impressive when given the context to it. Exactly. What, what else goes into a high value story, Stever? Because we've spoken about a number of different things and we want to build a $29 hamburger or dare I say it's Kobe uh, and thus it's a $500 hamburger. What else... What am I talking about? Thousand dollar hamburger. <laughs> what else goes into this burger? Wow, I'm really starting to want this burger. Want to want to try a bite of this burger at this point. Um, so I, I mentioned this earlier that there you need to be able to deliver your story and deliver it in a compelling way. And um, this is not right. This is not fair. This is not. This is but this is the way the world works. And the way the world works is that people do not process competence by just evaluating 
what they see or read in you. They also evaluate it by looking at your degree of confidence. So if you're telling a high value story and you walk in and um, so, well, so I, I wrote this $5,000, uh, this five, sorry, this 5,000 lines, lines of code. Um, and, uh, and it showed that I could debug stuff. If that's what you want, right? That's not going to come across as a high value story, even though it really is, you know, potentially an impressive story. But if I come in and say, you know what, I I wrote five thousand lines of code. Not a single bug was discovered after my initial debugging pass. It only took me three weeks. I'd love to bring that to your company. Now I've established the cognitive value, the analytic value, the value, the value that they that they're going to think about by telling them I did five thousand lines of code in three weeks and it didn't need to be debugged. And the way that I added the emotion, the confidence, and the straightforwardness to that, that's the part that makes it come across. In fact, if you, I don't know if people listening to this are techies or not, it's probably obvious, that's my background. But if anyone out there who is an electrical engineer, emotions are the carrier waves. And the story that you tell verbally is the actual message. For everyone else, what that means is, is you need to be thinking not just about can I tell a high value story where I take the things that I've done and give them a context so that people interpret them as having a lot of economic value, as having something that's going to make the, the, the business money? That's, that's, the, that's the thinking story. You also need the feeling story. And feelings are not communicated with words. And it's really important that you know that. Because if you say to somebody, you know, I don't want you to get upset, but wow, that's really going to work. Or if you say, you know, um, um, I want you to feel real confident about that plank. I'm, you know, that I'm pretty sure that plank is solid. Like, so when you walk across it, just, you know, you can just close your eyes and walk right across it. <laughs> you know, um, the emotional message that's being conveyed is not a message of you can trust what I'm saying. However, if I say to you, look, you know, I'm sure the plank is solid. We've had it constructed to all of the all of the standards and up to the code that we made up five minutes ago. And, you know, that code is going to be every bit as good as the actual housing code, the actual construction code. And if it isn't, we're going to cover the full cost of your funeral and having your body shipped back to your loved ones. So grab the board and just walk right across. What I am projecting is, <laughs> I am projecting is this is perfectly reasonable. We do this every day. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing to worry about, even though I'm talking about funding your funeral. And the, that part is the emotional part. Now, if you actually are nervous, we don't really have time to, to go through any techniques or things, but you know, this is where doing things like practice interviews come, in, uh, come into play. This is where doing things like, like delivering a message that you find difficult to deliver, but over and over in a mirror until you're comfortable doing it. This is one of the things for people who are listening, who are consultants, I don't know if any would tune into your podcast, but consultants essentially are in a never-ending job search. Every time they're looking for a new client, it's it's like doing a job search if you're an employee. So consultants, in fact, the ones who know what they're doing actually do get good at the, at the job search process. And with a consultant, one of the most common ways they screw up is when they're quoting their fees. Because to really make a living as a consultant, you have to charge pretty high fees because you don't work very many days. Most of your time is spent is spent drumming up the business, not actually delivering your product or service. So people say, oh, wow, this consultant makes you know $5,000 a day. 
Well, yeah, but it takes them three days of work to get that one day of business. So now they're down to $1,200 a day and they only end up getting business once or twice a month. So when you do the math, it's not actually a great paying job. So in order to make it a great paying job, you have to be able to say, you know, I charge $5,000 a day um, and I'm worth it. And here's why I'm worth it. And the most common thing that I hear from consultants who are taught, who are attending courses in sales is that, is that they just can't ask for that much money with a straight face. They're just, they're nervous. They can't, you know, they can't say it without non-verbally revealing that they consider that to be an unreasonable ask. And for this, all I have to say is thank you, Elon Musk and the Twitter takeover. Thank you, Jeff Bezos. A new story just came out that he has, he has all of the people who work at his, like his maids and things. He has them climb out the windows to hide when he's coming by because he doesn't want to see that they're there and they're not allowed to go to the bathroom in the same bathrooms. Like it's, it's just ridiculous. I don't know what this guy's fetish is with not letting people go to the bathroom, but it's a big theme in his life. And the reason that I say thank you to these people is because more than anyone else, what they've demonstrated to me is, fuck it. Like, oh, excuse me. I don't know if I can say that on this podcast. What they've demonstrated to me is it. Because they don't pause for a minute and say, am I worth $100 billion? Do I have the skills to do this? They just assume that they do and they blunder right on in and do whatever they do. And if it screws up, well, it screws up. It doesn't seem to shake their faith and their confidence in themselves at all. And, and so, so I, you know, I would advise you, I would advise all consultants, I would advise everyone, drop the idea that the, dollar, that the number means anything. Some people say, oh, you should, you should price based on value. Pfft, screw that. Just price based on, on what you want to get paid. And the only time that you need to think about the value piece is when you're looking at market rates. Because if you're applying for a job that where you're competing against lots of other people, and the other people are coming in at you know seventy-five thousand dollars a year, or you walk in and say, "I want nine hundred and seventy thousand dollars a year," you're going to be laughed out of the room. But, but you're in the wrong territory uh, for for what you want. But we've spoken about a number of things related to high value stories. Yep. And part of this involves context, creating context for the work that you do. Part of this is creating brand or reputation to justify the value you're, you're going to be charging, which can exist way before you're even considering looking for a job and should be done way before. You want yes. to be seen as the person who is the expert, the world-class individual in this area, if you can get to there. Um, and presenting yourself physically as one would expect someone like that in this arena to present themselves or better, yep. ideally better. And by the way, for those of you who are not familiar with the term schlump, uh, I just want to translate it just in case it's a term you're not familiar with. I'll just politely describe it as being ordinary, mediocre, sloppy, that sort of thing. Now, back to, back to the show itself, yes. we're looking at ways to create high-value stories around you so that you're the one who they want to choose. And you're seen as that top 1% individual or 
better yet, one-tenth of 1% individual instead of being one of the 99. Yep. Even so, the stories that, that are told about wealth in the United States, it's always the top 1%. These are the elite. Yep. Don't you want to be there or are you just happy being mm -hmm. in the 99%? Uh, and this isn't about so, money. It's about opportunities too. So yeah. what, what haven't we covered yet, Steve, or that we really should? Well, first of all, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to just do a little uh, thing here where I write like pop up. Whoa, that wasn't what I wanted to do. That's really funny. That's uh okay. I, I can't do the demonstration that I wanted to do. Well, that sucks. But it is what know. it is. Okay. It is what it is. Well, what I was going to do is I have a, I have a webcam, which when it's working, it um uh which when it's working it shows you it it, it shows you a a beautiful background of a high very high status office now it's clearly a virtual background right anyone who knows how to look 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 for these things will be able to tell but it still triggers the emotional reaction in people of wow he's calling in from his skyscraper and down you know in, in manhattan as it is i'm gonna blur gonna blur it so you can't tell i'm calling in from my bedroom um uh, so there's actual technology that you can use to help affect the, the impression you're giving. But also, as you were mentioning, you want to get your name out there. And the phrase personal branding, I think, has gotten kind of trite. We used to call it reputation once upon a time. But it's really become important. It's funny because I have heard a lot of people say things like, oh, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter if I'm posting on LinkedIn. It shouldn't matter if I have a blog. And you know what? I actually agree. It shouldn't matter. But it does. But it does. Because if somebody Googles you and the, you know, and the, and the, because that's a lot of people do that now. If they're going to, if you're going to be called in for an interview, say if I were interviewing someone, I would Google them to find out something about them. I would look at their LinkedIn profile, not because, you know, not because I should, but because I want information about them. Um, actually, if I can, if I can, I'll tell a story in just a second, a fun story. A horrifying story for those of you who, um, <laughs> for those of you who are interviewing for jobs, but a fun story for those of you who are interviewing other people for jobs. Um, but basically, you know, write a few articles, get get some posts, and and do this really strategically. Like decide what it is that you want to become known for. If you're a programmer, which is the, a lot of the examples I've been drawing from, write some articles on programming. Now. You know, a lot of programmers, you have to have your GitHub repository and you have to have code samples and you have to pass your coding challenges and all that stuff. But to make it, but everyone has to do that. So to make yourself stand out, write a couple of articles about how should you choose the optimal programming language for a task? Because I'll tell you something, other people aren't writing those articles. And in your application, well, so number one, first of all, you know, when you're applying for a job, say, by the way, you should check out my blog where I've written about my philosophy of coding. Things like that are going to distinguish you. Like, oh, he's not just a coder. He thinks about coding. He actually has a philosophy about coding. Let me go read about that. Now, interestingly, that will disqualify you from some jobs because maybe your philosophy goes counter to the way that company does business. But that's fine. Great. <laughs> because the ones for your, whom your company, for whom your, your coding philosophy is in line, they're going to be really interested in you. And right. the ones that aren't, you shouldn't be working there because they're going to dull your senses and turn you mediocre. Yes, very, very much. I mean, my one of my emphasis personally back when I was in high tech, which was a long time ago, uh, but when I was a programmer, I emphasized maintainable code. 
So if you were building a code base that you wanted to last for years, that you wanted it to be easy for people to debug, easy for it to be extended, I was your man. If you wanted a code base that was lightning fast, I was not your man. And in fact, the way that I worked best is you pair me with somebody who optimizes my code afterwards. So I write this uber maintainable code and then they come along and they make it fast. And uh, you know, at this point, um, I, I recently found out that a code base that I wrote as an undergrad is still in use 30 years later. It is still up and running. And I'm kind of like, yay, I, I succeeded at that. Now, when I was at the company, this was the, the company owned by the guy who taught me to program, they valued maintainability. So they let me do that. That was the approach that I took. I later went to work for a company that did not value maintainability. What they valued was speed to market. And they were quite explicitly willing to cut quality and to make it so that the code base would be horribly difficult to maintain five years from now, as long as they could get to the to Comdex, which was this big trade show. I don't know if it even still exists anymore. Uh, you know, by September. So if blogs had existed back then, which they didn't, but if blogs had existed, I would have written blog posts about maintainability and the second company would not have hired me and both of us would have been happier because I wouldn't have been spending all my time trying to push a maintainability agenda while they were saying, we don't care about maintainability, just hack something together so that we can ship it out and, you know, meet our numbers by Comdex. So if um, I'm interpreting this correctly, you're speaking to, and we're going to have to wrap up in a moment, but you're speaking to the notion that, again, understand what the value is that you offer an organization and does it match up with their value systems? If right. it doesn't, it's the wrong place for you. You will yep. die there emotionally. Your heart won't be in the work. Uh, it will eat you up from the inside. And that's not what you want to ever be doing. You want to go to environments that support you and nurture you and have the same values as you, maybe even challenge you, dare I say. Uh, yeah. and, and with that, uh, foster that, um, that world-class behavior. And get it out there. Make sure there's visibility into it. Because without the visibility, it doesn't matter if you're behaving that way. No one will know that you're behaving that way. And, and, and yeah. folks, some of you have seen my shows before. You, you know, I, one of the things I talk about is who knows about you. If no one Absolutely. knows about you, you're invisible. And being invisible doesn't help you at all. Steve, this has been great. Um, cool. How can people find Thanks. out more about you, the work you do, everything, please? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously I do work with high performers because it is very often the case that if you have one or two high performers and you unleash them to do the thing that they are best at doing, right, they they can be as valuable as half of the rest of your staff put together. Um, so think about how much money you make and figure the top 20% of that is your high performers. Those are the people that I optimize. And I kind of work with you and work with them to help them help you get the very best out of them. You can find me at steverrobbins.com, S-T-E-V-E-R-R-O-B-B-I-N-S.com or on LinkedIn. And do you remember your address on LinkedIn? Oh, yes. It's LinkedIn forward slash I-N forward slash Stever. Ooh. I got, I got, I got Stever back when, uh, uh, back when LinkedIn first started. Let me just double check that because it's LinkedIn.com forward slash IN forward slash Stever. S-T-E-V-E-R. Yes, I don't think you need my last name. You don't. It's just forward class Stever. Yes. 
<laughs> Steve, I got Steve or ha ha ha. Steve, thank you. And <laughs> folks, we'll be back soon with more. I'm Jeff Alpin, the Big Game Hunter. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you're watching on YouTube or elsewhere where you can give something a thumbs up, please do so. It does help other people with discovering the show. Also want to mention to you, Visit my website, thebiggamehunter.us. There is a ton in the blog that can help you. Plus, if you need to schedule time for a paid coaching session with me, find out about my courses, books, and guides. You can all do that at thebiggamehunter.us. Also, follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash the big game hunter. And Steve, I wanted to say one more thing, right? I wanted to say one more thing, which is whoever's listening. I want you to think about how much money you're making at your current job. I want you to increase that by 20%. And that's what Jeff can get for you because you deserve better. So make sure to connect with him. Thank you. And I'm, I really didn't ask him to do that. but No, he didn't, but that's a high value story. That is a higher value story than, than, you know, I help you get jobs. I help you with your career, right? Like, man, we're going to boost your income by 20% and people or hire more. Me, and people hire me for no BS career advice. Folks, yeah. have a terrific day. And most importantly, be great. <laughs>